This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you for this 76th consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic that has now taken the lives of over 918,000 Americans. And this pandemic has really made us take a look at ourselves from a healthcare system standpoint, how we deliver healthcare, the technology we've developed. We've got great technology in this country. There's no question. We have the best technology in the world when it comes to health, but we don't know how to deliver it. And that's why our guest today is going to be Dr. Stephen Schutzer. Dr. Schutzer, uh, many of you may know, has been a guest on our program before. He's an orthopedic surgeon at Trinity Health of New England, one of the founders of the Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute. And from there, he moved on, and his interest has been the value in delivering health care. And that's why we want to talk to him. How do you deliver the best valued health care to people? How do we incentivize people to do better and practice better and systems to work better? So it's going to be great to talk with him in the second half of our program um, because it's clear that we need to take a look at this situation. Oh, a funny story, an interesting story. I can't even say it's funny. It's just odd. The other day I was at a pharmacy and uh, standing in line, and people are in line. Uh, to get masks. They have N95 masks. Now, if you go to Walgreens, CVS, and many other places, they're available free. Um, They'll give you a certain number of those, and uh, they're important. As much as we're dropping mask mandates, when it is necessary to wear a mask, you might as well wear the best mask. So anyhow, I'm in line, and oddly enough, the person working behind the counter is wearing a, a bandana of some type, uh, you know, like he was robbing the place for, for some reason. So he wasn't even wearing a mask. And the person he was taking care of wasn't wearing a mask, the customer. There was no plexiglass divide. Now, just think about this. A certain number of people who go to a pharmacy may be ill. And here is someone who may be ill not wearing a mask, and the person taking care of the employee is only wearing a bandana that we all know is not a very efficient way of protecting yourself and others. It's almost like I was standing there watching a car accident happening, and it's, it's so frustrating from that standpoint. And you ask yourself, do you say anything? Don't you say anything? I, I, I don't even know what to say at that point because that's that's a level of putting your head in the sand that uh, I, I don't know that I can even deal with. So it's important that we really look at these situations and see ourselves, what are we doing? If you're in a pharmacy, put a mask on. Put a good mask on. 
these N95 masks I find to be more comfortable than any other mask, and they give the most protection. So uh, important to really learn from what we're seeing. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we had over 918,000 deaths now in the United States. Connecticut, our positivity is coming down. We're down to 4.45% is the number I checked this morning. But we have over 10,000 deaths in our state. Um, We have about 51% uh, of people who have gotten the booster shot. Whereas if you take the two-shot total, we have 77%. So our percentages are good, but certainly could be better. But our positivity rate is 4.45%. Now, everybody's jumping for joy, right? Because we were at 20%, and then last week we were at 6%. So it's moving in the right direction. But suddenly, suddenly, we're now going to get rid of mask mandates in school. And I have a problem with this. Uh, the the problem is that I I'm suspicious of the intent of our politicians, the so-called COVID fatigue. It's an election year, right? These people eating the room. They feel that people don't like the mandate, so let's give them what we they want, even if it is dangerous. And who's it dangerous for? Okay, so. I find that most children don't mind wearing the mask. And I, I base that anecdotally from my own grandchildren. But the point here is that we have lightened the restrictions radically when the percentages aren't that low. I mean, we had percentages down at 1%, 2%, and we were still wearing masks in school. So suddenly at 4.45%, we think it's okay. And the reason I think this is unfair to lift the mandate is because they haven't really lifted the mandate. They punted. This is something politicians do well. They kick the can down the road. Okay. So instead of saying, uh, no, you must wear a mask or you don't have to wear a mask, we're going to leave it up to this local community. Then they say, we're going to leave it up to the individual school. Principals have enough trouble running a school and educating people. Now they have to make health policy decisions. So it's wrong. Our leaders need to step up. And the people who this discriminates against are children with disabilities, children who cannot be vaccinated or in whom a vaccination cannot be fully effective, including children under the age of five. So what are we supposed to do with those children in school? Right? We're supposed to pull them out of school so that they cannot go to school just so for the few hours that students are being asked to wear a mask, right? Because when they're outside playing, they're not allowed, they don't have to wear masks, right? So we're going to clearly discriminate against these children who for no fault of their own and no choice of their own cannot be fully protected against this virus. It's just wrong. And I'm especially concerned about parochial schools because parochial schools are the first ones now to say, oh, no mask requirement here. Wearing a mask in a closed area is an act of kindness. 
That's what it is. It's an act of concern for your fellow citizens. So it's interesting when you look at it that way to see how many people actually are showing that kindness to others. We're going to watch this situation for sure because we're not out of the woods yet. I believe we should. We're learning a lot. and We're going to talk in the next segment a little bit about what we've learned in terms of moving forward and how we can lighten things up. February 12, 1828, this day in medicine, Dr. James Blundell performed the first successful hysterectomy. And the interesting part of that is that he has been called the founder of modern abdominal surgery. So key to remember that date in history. Uh, we had a question last week I didn't get to answer on the air from Paul. And uh, the question uh, was concerning uh, the vaccines and the newly, the new level of approval vaccines have gotten. I, I probably didn't make myself very clear, but the f- issue was the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have now been fully tested and fully vetted and now have reached the highest level of approval from the Food and Drug Administration. They are the same vaccine we started out with. First, they accumulated data that allowed for emergency use authorization, right? Same vaccine, now testing millions and millions and millions of more people, looking at side effects, looking at complications, and none of that changed. So they have achieved a higher level of support from the FDA. So uh, unfortunately, some people thought that there may have been a new vaccine or a revision of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine that did get that full approval. So once again, as I mentioned in previous weeks, um, you know, we have um, the benefit of having vaccines that are safe, effective, abundant, and free of charge. Let's take advantage of that blessing that we have in this country. We're going to take a short break. Then we'll be back to talk about a few issues that have come up in the past week. We're going to talk about um, the sad death of Bob Saget and some lessons we could learn from that. We're also going to talk about the Super Bowl and the NFL and the NFL experience with COVID. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and I want to talk a little bit about the sad death of comedian Bob Saget. Uh, as uh, many of the listeners know, uh, my specialty in medicine is neurology and specifically brain injury as it pertains to athletes and others. So when we have a tragedy, I think we all try to learn something from it in terms of is there a lesson in this? And I think there are several lessons in the sad death of Bob Saget. As many know, uh, several weeks ago, he was found dead in his hotel room in San Francisco. And it was determined this week that he died from 
bleeding into his brain after blunt head trauma. So basically, he had an injury to his head that resulted in hemorrhage in the brain. And what happens is, as the blood accumulates in the brain, it increases pressure. Don't forget, the skull is a closed space. So as the blood accumulates, there's more pressure pushing the brain and pushing it downward and resulting in death. Now, there are two different types of hemorrhage that we deal with, particularly in this. Um, there's the epidural hemorrhage, which is a hemorrhage that's more towards the outer layer of the brain, between the skull and the outer layer. And that's seen in about 10% of, of patients, and that's an arterial bleed. So it's an important issue there. It's a, the middle meningeal artery that bleeds and causes rapid hemorrhage, as we all know. Again, artery bleeding rapid. What's scary about an epidural hemorrhage is many will also remember Natasha Richardson. And often in epidural hemorrhage, you will see what we call the lucid interval or the lucid period. So it's a scenario where someone hits their head, gets a headache, may have a loss of consciousness, and then feels fine. And they could feel fine and back to normal except for a light headache for several hours. And then they rapidly deteriorate and die. And that was the case with actress Natasha Richardson back in 2009. That's the nightmare for a sports medicine physician. Because you'll see an athlete who hits their head, says they're fine, and the next thing you know, they could uh, deteriorate quickly and die. In the case of Bob Saget, it's believed that he passed on from a hemorrhage called a subdural hematoma, which is a hematoma seen, it's hemorrhage seen deeper uh, in the brain between the outer lining and the inner lining. And this is venous blood. So these are bridging veins that we see that can be torn and result in hemorrhage. And with a subdural hematoma, it's more of a slower accumulation. Both of these are often seen with a skull fracture, and that was the case also with Bob Saget. Uh, in the case of blunt trauma, you say, well, what, what could have happened? Any number of things could have happened. Probably the most common thing I see outside of sports is a slip and fall in the bathroom. Folks, the bathroom is a dangerous place. If you're, especially if you're older and may not have the same balance that you would have, especially in the bathtub, if you don't have a bath mat, you can strike your head very hard. And I suspect it was something of that nature in the case of Bob Saget. So I, I think the lessons to be taken here are, first of all, as we get older, we are more prone to these hemorrhages. And as we get older, our brain gets smaller. So there's more space for blood to accumulate. Thus, 
a period where there may be no symptoms. So we need to have a very low threshold for seeking medical attention after a head injury. One thing that bothers me is the lack of helmet use in older adults. For some reason, older people think that the helmets are only for children. No, it is more imperative that older people wear a helmet because our veins and arteries are more susceptible to injury. Our skull is more susceptible to fracture. So it's frustrating when I see people out biking, especially older people, not wearing a helmet. Or on the ski slopes, older people not wearing a helmet. Because they are the people who are most vulnerable. On the flip side, as a physician, when I train young physicians, I teach them to have a very low threshold for getting a head CT scan, the so-called CAT scan. A non-contrast head CT scan is a relatively inexpensive test to do. It has minimal radiation when done properly, and it will tell you if there's a hemorrhage or bleeding into the brain or around the brain. And the importance there is, I've never met a physician who felt remorse over ordering a CT scan in a head injured person that came back negative. I have seen remorse in young physicians and health professionals who did not order a CT scan thinking they didn't need one or they were influenced by the fact that people say we need to keep costs down and then have it end in the demise of a patient because they didn't do a simple test. So I teach young physicians have a low threshold for getting the CT scan. You will feel better at the end of it. Uh, in the next couple of minutes, just want to touch base. Since it's Super Bowl weekend, right? the NFL has a lot of experience dealing with COVID right now. 95% uh, of players have been vaccinated. 100% of staff are vaccinated. And they found that there's very little transmission on the field. They have been studying their population very carefully. And it, they have several clear conclusions. The first is that natural immunity after you've had COVID is very unpredictable. You can't tell whether you will be immune for a month, two months, six months. No one knows that. But we do know that immunity from a vaccine is much more predictable. They also found that unvaccinated players lost a lot of playing time and lost a lot of their health and performance. So vaccinated players fared much better overall in terms of their health and performance as well as their teams that would not have them to perform on a Sunday. So it's important, and the NFL is now really following their data as we start to lighten things up. So it'll be interesting to follow. I also found the NFL, when they first came out, they said these are the danger signs to everybody. If you're eating, meeting, or greeting, those are the three places where you'd be more likely to contract COVID-19. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Stephen Schutzer. We're going to be talking about value-based health care. You're listening to Healthy Rounds 
on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Schutzer. Dr. Schutzer is an orthopedic surgeon at uh, Trinity Health of New England. He is physician director of the Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute, which is, uh, if you listen to the show regularly, an institute of national acclaim in their excellence with regard to joint replacement. And he introduced to them a value-based approach to joint replacement. And I remember him being on the show and discussing this with us, but this has really moved on and and it's really become a a movement. So we wanted to get him back on. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Tony. Pleasure to be on. So talk to me a little bit about moving to Value Alliance. I've seen your emails and, and what's going on. What is the move to val- moving to Value Alliance? Well, the Moving to Value Alliance is a, a gr- grassroots effort started five years ago to advance the, uh, the value agenda. And you know, just to read the mission, it, it reads like this. The mission of the Value Alliance is to create a value-based healthcare ecosystem with the highest quality outcomes at a reasonable cost for the employers in our state and their healthcare consumers, which you and I would call our patients. Uh, it started five years ago. It, it is an extension of some of the work that we talked about 11 years ago to the day, Tony, the first time I was on your show, uh, introducing bundled payments and CJRI. You know, time is running short, my friend. We, we need to step up and all participate in this urgent transformation. So let's talk about it. And, and, you know, when you were on 11 years ago, the talk was really everybody uniformly deciding what the best hardware was to replace in a joint, um, what the best practices and protocols were to avoid infection. And, and that's how you ended up with stellar statistics. How have you taken that and expanded it beyond really the focus of joint replacement? Yeah, that's a great question. And you've got a, gr- a great memory. You know, what, what we pulled off now 15 years ago was something that most thought couldn't be done. You know, pulling together formally competing surgeons, getting together, getting them to agree to making data-driven decisions, focusing on the patient at the top of the pyramid. And that, you know, that, that was our DNA right from the beginning, Tony. And it was so successful, that model that we created, that it then spawned, as you know, the Spine Institute, the Sports Institute, and the Trauma Institute at St. Francis. But all with that same focus, you know, and I, you and I from the Bronx, um, you know, and uh, we, we have a very simple mind. And I look at healthcare in terms of the, the value equation, the outcomes that matter to our patient for their medical problem over the true cost of delivering those outcomes. So, you know, that again is the mindset that's, that's driven us over the last 15 years to continue to iterate and improve our models. So when we look at that, say for example, well, if we take any problem, I mean, our problems are pretty deep in healthcare right now. We can't find nurses. Um, we have, um, you know, shortages of not just personnel, 
um, equipment, and, and there's so much variability. So I'm assuming that you're focusing on improving the value here in Connecticut and locally first. Am I right on that, Steve? Yes, that's true, but you also want to be involved in, on the national scene as well. So what do you see, in other words, if you were to focus outside of joint replacement, what would be another target that really impacts um, health care? For example, I've heard this, you know, when applied to stroke and, and stroke care. We have stroke centers of excellence and stroke protocols. Is that one of, is that kind of the low-hanging fruit that could really uh, make a difference? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Warren Buffett, famously said four or five years ago that healthcare is a tapeworm in the U.S. economy. Unfortunately, a year ago, he concluded the tapeworm won. And that's discouraging. You know, we, we, there are some bright spots, but there are some significant headwinds. At the Alliance, we're going to focus on a few key elements of the value agenda. One is advancing primary care. The second is practice and care transformation payment reform, and the Connecticut cost growth benchmark. And, of course, to do so, we need to grow the energy and commitment of this community, which we're now calling the Moving to Value Alliance. Okay, so let's take the first thing you said, expanding primary care. My goodness, let's face it, Steve. Primary care these days, these people are overrun. Um, that We have felt it through COVID. And they aren't very well reimbursed for their efforts. Uh, when we look to Canada, right, and, and I hate to even compare us to, to, to another country, but when we look to Canada, many primary care physicians who either have citizenship there or relations there have gone up there and do very well and are treated very well, not just financially. Um, how do we change... How do we change that paradigm? How do we change that system right there? Because uh, I believe, just as you're saying, if you could influence primary care, you could make a radical change in the system. What would you propose that we do to change primary care and how it exists now? Yeah, Tony, that's a great question. I could take the rest of your show and then some to expand on that. But, you know, we like to say that healthcare needs a Copernican revolution where primary care becomes the center of the healthcare ecosystem. And folks like me, you know, I'm, I'm a joint replacement guy. We, we, we're important. We get people their life back and their wheels back. But we, we need to change our focus. We need to invert the model where primary care is at the center. I mean, you know this as well as I do. Primary care is the only medical specialty where additional investment yields better outcomes. And it's been actually demonstrated that for every dollar invested in primary care, $13 is saved in downstream health care cost. There are a number of models nationally that are really, really exciting. Vera Whole Health, who's coming to Connecticut, very exciting model. Village MD, Oak, ChenMed, and so on. These are very exciting advanced primary care models where the primary care physicians are not paid by the click. They're not paid by the by the visit to pay for the outcomes, the health outcomes they deliver. Just imagine a world like that, Tony. So there's been a shift, obviously, in primary care because so few physicians are going into it. Now we deal a lot more with, um, you know, nurse practitioners and advanced practice providers, PAs, 
how does that fit into this model um, that was previously treated, uh, tre previously really occupied by physicians who did residencies and, and fellowship in uh, primary care? Yeah, so that, you know, that really calls into mind Clay Christensen's concept of pushing care down to the top of the provider's license. Probably 75% of basic primary care can be handled by advanced practice providers, nurse practitioners, and phys uh, physician assistants. We have some working with us to do virtually everything that I can do at about $3 a minute versus my $10 a minute. So, you know, part of this transformation is, is a reallocation of work. And as you know, m much of it, I mean, COVID, for all the disaster that it's caused, has really accelerated and energize the virtual care transformation. So much. Do I need to see a three-month post-total hip replacement in my office when they're walking four miles a day? All I need to do is see them on a telehealth visit. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. <laughs> That's the vision. Right. So, you know, part of what you're, you're, you're speaking about is a bigger play with virtual care and, 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 and bringing in more advanced uh, practitioners. So, Steve, you've, you've touched on one of my pet peeves, okay? During COVID, um, telehealth really grew. I mean, and you and I have talked about this before. It was telehealth is key, just as you're saying that, just as I've seen somebody for a concussion who may be doing well, do I need to drag them back into the office just to see how they're doing a week later? Probably not. But, okay, but. Now we have limited reimbursement for telehealth rather than encourage it. Some insurers are not paying for it. Medicare is talking about not paying for it, or they may have stopped already. And we run into the other problem of if you treat people who are out of state, you need to be licensed in that state. Um, how do we get around this stuff? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's another great question. Look, I, I don't think the cost of the on-premise visit is the same as a telehealth visit. Uh, you know, if, if I agree, it's probably worth it's probably worth seventy five, eighty percent. You know, we don't have to have the overhead payments and so forth. But on the other hand, if we retreat to uh, you know de minimis twenty five, thirty dollars a visit, it will undermine the impact of, of virtual care. I don't think that's going to happen. I think there's a a strong chorus to from so many different companies that we don't go back to that. Um, I, I still think we're underutilizing virtual care, Tony. I think it could could be expanded. But it, it, let's face it, we do have some fixed costs in managing our practices that if they revert to the old payment methodologies, it, it, it'll have a negative impact for sure. It, when you've looked around the world, and I've done this as well, is there any one system? Because I, I believe we could learn from the experience of others. Um and there are certainly better delivery systems that we've found during COVID where they've been able to keep the numbers down. Is there a system that you particularly like and can particularly learn from? Yeah, that's another great question. I've been reading about this for a long time, and there are some really great books that address just that. I happen to like Regina Herzinger's perspective from the Harvard Business School. She loves the Swiss model. And what's fundamentally different about that is that the rank and file payers, the, the carriers, the insurance companies, are nonprofit for most of healthcare, other than the boutique 
cosmetic surgery and stuff, and they buy and compete for customers. That's a fundamental sea change uh, in a model we have here in the United States, where obviously the payer community are, are for profit and, you know, the ramifications of that. So I have read a lot about the Swiss system. Um, I'm sort of interested and intrigued about that. The other one that's caught my eye is Taiwan. They have a, a, a system where everybody's health records are interoperable. Wouldn't that be spectacular? So wow. there is a lot to learn uh, for, from other, other um, programs. Well, I mean, just just what you're saying and just, you know, we've made progress with the electronic health record, but it's still not there. I mean, we're still having trouble getting records or, you know, I can't look at films done at Day Kimball Hospital, for example, or another hospital when the patient is in my office. Uh, You know, wouldn't that be great? But I want to get back to moving to Value Alliance. So, um, you know, what are some of the goals that you've set out for this group? Yeah, so the goals are to um, transform healthcare, to, again, advance the principles that we've already spoken about, of advanced primary care, practice transformation, payment reform, and so forth. And, you know, it's difficult. There's a lot of headwinds. There's a lot of obstacles, a lot of money in the way. But, you know, I think that as we grow this community and we can leverage the clout and skills and gravitas of our members we can continue to disrupt the incumbency, the status quo. Our goal is to inform, provoke, stimulate debate, and we want it to lead to really measurable action. Uh, you know, Jeff Hogan and I, you know, you know Jeff, he's one of the brightest folks in healthcare that I've ever come across. And so we recently were asked to testify with a, a number of others in front of a legislative subcommittee on healthcare crisis. And, I, I, you know, it was eye opening for us and for them. And we anticipate further movement on a number of policy fronts that will stem from that. We continue to attract provocative speakers. We have another forum uh, webinar coming up on March 4th. But, you know, we, we're, we don't want to be viewed as, a, as an organization that just creates content. That's why we call it a move to action. Uh, we, we are attracting provocative speakers, and we'll continue to inform and enthuse action by our community. And <laughs> as Jeff has said, when all else fails, we can always use a, a good old-fashioned dose of guilt to motivate change. Listen, we're, we're in trouble, and, and you know the, the statistics as well as I do. It, it, you know, you and I are in medical school. Healthcare consumes 7% of our economy. It's now closer to 19%, and that's going to affect every bit of our society, our ability to defend our borders, to educate our children, to rebuild our infrastructure. You know, one in four Americans have health care debt. We're now the number one cause of insolvency is health care. And what do we get for that spend? Some of the worst outcomes in the world. So you know, the time to talk is over. We need to come together as a community, as an alliance. We have a common pain point. At some point, Tony, all of us are going to be patients or our families, and we're going to interact with this system. So we have a moral imperative to do better. Steve, I, I hope so many of our listeners absorb what is going on here and, and the importance of this um, to all of us. And and I can only sum it up by saying the most important statistic is our longevity is decreasing, and, and, and that's been the change. Um, Steve, thank you.
Uh, thanks for your time today. Thanks for everything you and the folks are doing at Moving to Value Alliance. And uh, please keep me informed um, as to what's going on and to the progress uh, you're making and uh, other lessons uh, to be learned. Thank you again for your time. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with, to wrap up today's program. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds. In wrapping up today, I want to talk a little bit about the strain on hospitals right now in terms of being able to provide patients with staff. We are in a situation where medical staff especially nurses, people on the front lines, are really suffering from compassion fatigue, where they're taking care of patients who are demanding of others, but not demanding of themselves to do the right thing. Our future is looking like this. There are going to be 70 million baby boomers who are aging in this country who are going to need assistance, need health care, need support at home. And right now, we are at a shortage of 270,000 nurses in this country. What has happened now is we have now opened up our borders more to foreign nurses. This is nothing new to us. Um, this has been going on a long time in this country, but now the need is even greater where we're trying to attract nurses, especially from English-speaking countries like the Philippines and Jamaica. So you'll be seeing more and more uh, faces of people who want to come here, want to live in this country, and apply for visas. And it, it's important. But what's more important is that we get a grasp of how we need to treat medical providers and these people who give of their lives to, to care for us um, are doing so much for us and to treat them with respect and hopefully attract more to come into the profession. With that, I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Stephen Schutzer. It's rare that we have a guest who uh, brings in the name of Nicholas Copernicus as part of the discussion, as he did today. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer, uh, Anthony Dorenzo, is on the board. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Um, if you missed any part of today's show, you can get the podcast by uh, going to the Healthy Rounds podcast on iTunes. If you have any questions about today's show, things that come across, things we said, um, things that come across your desk, just send them over to me at info at alessimd.com. Next up on WTIC is Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Have a great week. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.